Welcome to What Kind of Asian Are You? The podcast where we explore the diverse and dynamic experiences of being Asian in the diaspora. In this podcast, we bring you a different conversation with an Asian from the diaspora each week, delving into their unique backgrounds, upbringing, and the amazing things they are doing now. Welcome to What Kind of Asian Are You podcast, a podcast featuring conversations about being Asian. I'm your host, Kyle. Thank you for listening, and if you want to support us, just keep listening to this episode and also other episodes as well. In addition to that, follow us on Instagram at What Kind of Asian Pod. Follow the podcast on your favorite streaming platforms. Leave ratings and reviews on Apple and Spotify podcasts. We just want to make sure that this podcast reaches to those that will benefit from hearing stories from Asians in the diaspora. And now today's guest. He's a storyteller. Actually, he's many things and someone with so many stories to tell from himself and also of his family. So it'd be so great to hear all about his life, his story, his work, his family's history, and of course, his upcoming memoir, Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant, coming out October 17th. Without further ado, we have writer, producer, director, and activist, Curtis Chin. Hi, Curtis. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thank you for inviting me. So I just want to let the audience know a little bit more about you, what you're all about, your family history, because we have so much that we want to know about you and all that you've gone through and such. So can you just let the audience know who you are, what you're about, and most importantly, what kind of Asian are you? <laughs> well, I guess to know about me, you kind of need to know about my family, right? So originally, we're from southern China, one of the Seyyuk, one of the four original counties that sent their people to America. You know, we were, you know, the dirt poor people. <laughs> uh, in my book that I wrote, I start off talking about this journey, my family to America. It started with my great, great grandfather in the late 1800s coming from Canton, China to Canton, Ohio, before realizing there weren't any Chinese people there and then moving up to Detroit. And that's where they really established roots in America, first opening a uh, laundry, well, working in the laundries, and then saving enough money to own their own laundry, and then a grocery store, and then eventually a series of Chinese restaurants, which really, in my opinion, uh, the most popular Chinese restaurants in Detroit. And that's where I grew up in one of those places, a restaurant called Chung's, which is really the heart of Chinatown. And so that's how I would define myself as really a restaurant kid. Yeah, that's not how I make my living now. I'm a writer and producer. But, you know, at the heart, I still feel like that little kid growing up in the kitchen, popping my head into the refrigerators, you know, snacking on bowls of soup and eating an egg roll. That's awesome. And I love that you're saying that you're a restaurant kid. Cause I think so many of those in the Asian diaspora can relate, you know, being part of a kind of restaurant family. Because I didn't, but I know a lot of people, my friends and stuff, they had their parents run like restaurants. You mentioned how, you no, know, it started from your great great grandfather who came to America. It's really interesting because he ended up in Canton, Ohio at first, when a lot of times back in those days, when they started, they were going for San Francisco for the gold rush and stuff. But then I guess for your family's trajectory, it was it went a different way, which still ended up where in the restaurant kind of thing, which is still very popular in terms of the story of the Asian diaspora. So can you just talk about your kind of 
understanding of your family history as it relates to kind of their imprint on the restaurant industry in Detroit as well? Because I think there's so much kind of history and background that your family had in terms of the whole fabric of American, Chinese-American restaurant industry. Well, I think part of the reason they chose the Midwest was at that time, there was already a lot of racism against Chinese people on along the West Coast. And you did start to see a movement of people going to other cities like Chicago and, you know, Milwaukee and St. Louis, you know, first the East Coast, but then also now the Midwest, right? Because on the West Coast, people were literally getting lynched. Laws were being written preventing Asians, uh, Chinese and then Asians, you know, from establishing a foothold. So uh, I think the theory for a lot of these newer immigrants was, well, let's just bypass it. Let's go to these other areas where we're a smaller population and maybe less of a threat. And so that's how they ended up in the Midwest so early. It's not because they, they wanted to live in the Midwest. They just felt like they might uh, encounter less resistance and less racism there. And so working, you know, like most immigrants, they just worked really, really hard. They started off in the laundries because that's a very low capital uh, occupation, right? You just have to have, you know, a strong back. And they were able to save up money working long hours. And then they opened up a grocery store. They were really clever because one of the things that they did was they had a full service truck. So they were able to actually drive around throughout the metropolitan Detroit area, also southeastern Michigan, um, delivering supplies to people and stuff like that. And I think that was really critical to their success. And, you know, after making enough money, they moved into the restaurant business. The first restaurant they opened was in 1939. And there's a lot of family drama as to why they went into uh, restaurants, but I won't get too much into it. But that's how they, they switched over. And I do think that restaurants were perceived as a, you know, a more, um, you know, a better job than doing the laundries. You know, even though it was still as much hard work, I think that there was a greater sense that, that you know, um, restaurants was a greater sign of integration you know, or, or advancing up the social ladder, I think. Going back to a little bit about you specifically, because you, you mentioned, oh, you grew up in that restaurant environment. And uh, with the restaurant, it's one of the more popular ones and you know, recognizable one in the area in Detroit, as I've read a lot of things about, you know, your family's history. So can you just talk about your experience being that restaurant kid? All the stories that you have, anything interesting happened, celebrities, all that stuff that would occur because, you know, it's a popular Chinese restaurant. Well, I was lucky in the sense that by the time I came around, the restaurant was already established and it was already popular. So maybe, you know, while, while we did struggle because Detroit was having difficulties when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s, it already had a really strong client base. And like you said, uh, we had celebrities coming in. But, you know, much like the, the city of Detroit, you know, well, one of the things I like to say about Chinese restaurants is it's a really a microcosm of society, right? You can walk in and see people from different races, classes, sexual orientations, religions. And that was true of our restaurant as well. So um, in addition to people like the mayor who would come in all the time, you know, we had the people who lived around the streets of Detroit because we were in the red light district. And so we had prostitutes and, and the drug dealers coming in as well. So we really got to see the whole gamut of Detroit in that restaurant. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful childhood. One of the things that people often ask me uh, concerning the title of my book, which is everything I learned, I learned in a Chinese restaurant is, well, so what did you actually learn working in that restaurant? And the first thing I like to say is that, you know, when you're a kid, a lot of times parents will say things like, don't talk to strangers. My parents had the exact opposite reaction. They told us to talk to strangers and who they were referring to were the customers sitting in our dining room 
because my mom didn't graduate high school and my dad only went to college, community college for I think two semesters or so. But so they didn't really know what opportunities existed outside those four walls, right, of that Chinese restaurant. But they knew there was a dining room full of people that had experiences that could open up opportunities for us. Um, and so anytime someone came in and my dad would strike up a conversation with them and find out that they were doing some interesting work, he would call all of all of us, my five siblings and me, to run over and start barraging these people with questions about like, well, what did they do for a living? How did they get their job? How much money do they make? Uh, anything that, you know, that we might need to know about like, well, what other things were out there for us? And so I really thank my parents for having that open attitude of trying to, you know, at one time knowing who you are and having a strong foundation, but also being, you know, brave enough to go out there and ask questions and to explore the world. And so that was all because of a Chinese restaurant and, and, and it's, um, you know, unique situation. That's amazing. And I could like, just from that story, I can kind of feel like, Oh, that's how you ended up being where you are now today as a writer, which we'll get into for sure. But before we get to that, I want to just talk about like, just from what I have known of you in terms of research and stuff, you, you talked about how, you know, for a long time you thought like, Oh, I am in the restaurant family, restaurant industry. I'm going to become one of those that just take over the family business and all that stuff. But obviously, as we know right now, you're not in that industry anymore. You're a writer. You do a lot of stuff relating to writing, um, producing content and all that stuff. So how did we get there? Because it's a far stretch from just working at the restaurant to now you're a writer writing about various things related to your identity and all that stuff. Well, actually, the jump from being a waiter to a writer is only one letter. Mm, but true. you're right. It's actually a much bigger jump than that, right? So it all happened uh, as I was about to enter high school. This was Detroit in the 80s, and there was a famous hate crime there called, um, well, the Vincent Chin murder, right? And hopefully your listeners will know about that. If not, I highly encourage them to Google it. I'll set it up for you. It was the 80s. It was a very difficult time for my hometown. The auto industry was really suffering layoffs. There was a lot of unemployment, people losing their jobs, you know, losing their homes, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of that led to um, anti-Asian sentiments because they were blaming the Japanese automobile companies. Um, as Asian Americans, we suffered some of that backlash. Sadly, Vincent Chin was out celebrating his upcoming wedding. He goes to the strip club. Uh, at some point, these two white auto workers come in. They're overheard saying it's because of you mother blanks that were out of work. They get thrown out of the bar. But sadly, um, these two guys get in their car and they drive around the city until they find Vincent sitting outside of a McDonald's. And they take a baseball bat out of their uh, car, uh, backseat of their car, and they bash his head in and they kill him. And uh, it was just a very devastating um, incident. And definitely one that uh, impacted me because, you know, if you know somebody that's been murdered like that, um, you know, you're obviously going to pay attention. And I actually say this in my book. I say, Vincent wasn't the first person I knew to get murdered, nor would he be the last. But his death really impacted me um, the most because so much of it was about race. Um, and so uh, that very next morning after he had been attacked, um, you know, we knew about it, right? Because it's a small community. Uh, of Chinese or Cantonese speaking um, uh, um, Chinese Americans, 
we all knew about it. And so uh, I kept looking through the papers trying to figure out what they were going to say about this, right? Uh, but no story appeared, I believe, for 12 days. It took 12 days, despite the fact that Vincent was in a coma fighting for his life in the hospital, despite there were all these different angles to it, right? Nothing was ever reported. Um, and then one article appeared. Um, and then after that, it took another 10 months before another article appeared. And meanwhile, through all this whole time, the media was constantly reporting about the white auto workers, the difficulties they were having. And I was getting frustrated. And so I took it upon myself to start writing letters to the editor, you know, in the back of our restaurant. I'd, I'd lug out the typewriter when we still use typewriters. And I would, you know, pound away on the keyboard and just, you know, write these letters, you know, asking about the case and asking them to cover it. But, um, you know, uh, none of my letters ever got published because I'm 14 years old. Maybe I'm not a very good writer at that time. But it really showed me the importance of having a voice because I... I honestly believe that if there had been more work done by the journalists to cover the story, the media, to like pay attention to, to our concerns, then I don't know if the judge would have given that sentence, the one that was so horrific, where these killers only were fined $3,000 and never had to serve a single day in jail. I mean, that was just egregious. But, you know, in that vacuum where nobody you know, in the media was talking about this case or rarely talking about it, you could sort of see how that could happen. And so that's why I have devoted my life to um, giving more opportunities for people of color, specifically Asian Americans, to have a platform to talk. It's why I went to college and I studied creative writing and then immediately afterwards moved to New York to co-found an organization called the Asian American Writers Workshop, um, which has really had now a 30-year history of opening doors for for Asian American writers to tell our stories. And it's all because of that one murder back when I was a teenager and the lack of coverage uh, that, that sort of led me on this life journey. Yeah, thank you first and foremost for telling us that story and giving us context to what has happened, um, a horrible event. And if audience want to know more, and I definitely think they should if they don't know about it, Definitely check out all the stuff that are out there for it. And also the documentary that you made, Vincent Who, that they can check out as well. I, I put that documentary online for free at my website, CurtisFromDetroit.com, because I really just want more people to know about the story. That, that, that's my main goal of making that film. Just have people remember the story. Exactly. Yeah, definitely check it out and um, learn an important part of Asian American history, in my opinion. And talk more about your writing career, your journey and such. So you mentioned you went to school for it and like um, you mentioned for creative writing. So can you just talk about your overall journey in this kind of writing career and your kind of experience dealing with the kind of the industry, the, all that stuff, because you kind of had to deal with it till now where your memoirs kind of come out. Can you just talk about that kind of journey, what you learned and what kind of things that you want people to know more about, especially being maybe someone that's a person of color trying to embark on a creative journey in writing? Well, I have to say that if you go back to my really younger self, it's really quite surprising to me that I'm in this industry or this is my occupation because I never really read as a kid because I was at the Chinese restaurant the whole time. I didn't have books around. The only two type of books we had were all left behind by our customers. Uh, one were those Harlequin romances because he had a lot of single women that would read during lunch. Um, but then the Bible, you know, and being a closeted gay Asian kid 
who's Buddhist, I didn't have an interest in either one. So I never found material that really excited me and made me think like, oh, you know, I could be a writer. And it really was only after, again, high school that I started to get interested in it. And I feel like I had a lot of catching up to do, right? Because again, I didn't grow up thinking of writing or reading much. You know, I did read the newspapers. That's about it. But I didn't I didn't read literature per se. And then going off to the University of Michigan, I um, stumbled upon poetry as a, a thing because it actually fit my schedule because I was working full time. I was a first generation college kid going to a predominantly white institution at the University of Michigan. And I had to work full time, you know, to to pay for school. And so I had I had to choose classes that were at weird times, right? Oftentimes, you know, in the evening and Fortunately, there were a lot of creative writing classes in the evening. And so I took those courses and um, got into the creative writing program. There were about 20 people in that program. Um, I was the only person of color, which led to a lot of issues. And, you know, that again contributed to this idea of why I needed to surround myself with other writers of color and why moving to a city like New York made sense for me. And that's what that's what I did. Uh, I moved to New York, started continued writing poetry. I won a NIFA, which is the New York Foundation for the Arts, at a fairly young age, you know, got published. Then my life took a turn after meeting a guy, actually reconnecting with a guy who I'd met earlier. And he was living in Los Angeles at the time. And so uh, because I had extra money, because I'd won this fellowship, I decided to, to take a leap and just move out to L.A. And that's how I ended up here. I, did, I wasn't really thinking of pursuing Hollywood. That wasn't my goal. But, you know, I was out here in Los Angeles and there really wasn't much I could, you know, job opportunities for me and things like that. So I thought like, OK, well, I'll get a job where what other people are doing, which is um, working in television and film, because that's where the creative creative world is out here. Um, New York, it was, you know, artists, theaters. It was just a different vibe. You know, I didn't really I, I think it probably existed out here in L.A., but it wasn't just as prominent, it just wasn't as in your face those other segments of the arts community. And so I, I, I pursued TV and film. And, uh, you know, like with most people, I, I did the assistant route. Uh, again, I won another fellowship um, called the ABC Disney Fellowship, which is a, a writing award where they actually uh, pay you to write shows. And so I did that for a few years. Um, and yeah, that's, that's how I got my start, um, uh, working in the industry. That's great. So you've been working on it for you know for a long time you've seen the ups and downs and kind of the trajectory of where at the beginning where it's like oh no people of color or like very limited till now where it's like we always talk about oh this especially like in our asian asian american communities where it's like oh asian representation aapi representation all that stuff do you have any kind of thoughts of like how you see it go from, say, from the 80s to the 90s to now where you know, a lot of people say, oh, we're in like the kind of the the peak or like we're, we're getting something that we really should be proud of. Can you speak to that? Hopefully it's not a peak because a peak implies that there's a downturn afterwards. I do think that there's some systematic things going on, uh, structural things in the industry, which are creating opportunities for Asian Americans specifically, but other people of color in general as well. Um, and the stat that I like to always throw out is just when I was a kid watching TV, to be a hit show, you needed about 30 million viewers to be renewed, right? By the time I broke into television, that number had dropped to about 8 to 12 million. Nowadays, 
I think the best guess, because some of the streaming numbers are not available, is that you can have three or four million viewers and get renewed. I mean, if you look at some of the shows that we know, you know, that's about the number of viewers they had. So if you're talking about a community like Asian Americans who have also in that time period grown exponentially, right, where we're close to, what, 7% of the U.S. population now, the ability to hit 3 million viewers, 4 million viewers is, is uh, much easier, right? And so plus the fact that, you know, the number of shows in production have just exploded. When I broke in, there was maybe 80, 90 uh, shows on and that's where the jobs were. Now there's about 400 shows in production. And so there's just a, there's just a need for more content. Right. And so I do think that there are a lot of structural um, things going on in the business model that have opened up more opportunities for us. So I don't think it's a peak. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think this is something that's here to stay every year. You should expect to see a few shows about Asian Americans. You should expect to see a few movies about Asian Americans. You should expect to see books by Asian Americans because that's just the marketplace. I mean, we have a we have a large enough, uh, you know, I guess what would be called market segment or Mm -hmm. community, you know, audience, you know, to uh, make us profitable for these companies. Exactly. And you talking about books, let's talk about your book, your memoir that's coming out August 17th. Very exciting. Can you just tell us about, no, first off, why? I mean, like, of course we want that story, but why did you feel like it's time to write it? And what was that journey like? Uh, well, first, October 17th, uh, we have a giant kickoff in New York City um, at the Strand. So if you're in New York City, please join us. Uh, we then embark on a 30-city tour. Um, uh, again, you can check it out at curtisfromdetroit.com. Um, you know, again, we kick off in October, uh, which is actually a really difficult time because it's when all the big books come out because it's the holiday buying season. So in some ways, it's a sign of faith that my publishers have in this book. Um, so hopefully uh, we'll do well. Um, in terms of the journey, yeah, it took a while to get this book done. Partly it's because when I started writing it, it really was a personal project. I really wasn't even thinking of selling the book. I mean, obviously it's in the back of my mind, but at the forefront, it really was about telling my family's story because um, sadly my dad passed away um, you know, uh, in a car accident back in Detroit. And because of that, I had to go back home to sell the family business, sell the restaurant, you know, this wonderful place I grew up in. And uh, my mom was not in a position to uh, take over and none of our siblings wanted to do it either. And so we had to close down this wonderful restaurant. Um, Everybody moved out to the Bay Area. We all left the Michigan area. And, uh, you know, when my siblings started having kids and they were growing up, I started to feel really bad that that they didn't know anything about Michigan or our family's history in the Midwest. Uh, You know, and I wanted to write down these stories to sort of, you know, connect them to it. So it really was started off as a project for my nieces and nephews, right, something for them to read about. Um, And so I did a lot of just writing of family stories, cute things about, you know, my grandmother who would boil our pets to eat for dinner (laughs) or my grandfather who was involved or was the head of the uh, Chinese Tong in Detroit. You know, Um, those are the type of stories I was writing. Um, I had difficulty selling that story because it didn't seem like people wanted to hear that story. But then something happened was uh, 
you know, COVID, which really changed my life as with everybody else. But basically, I was in the middle of production of a film. I had to shut down. I couldn't do anything. I was stuck here in L.A. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to focus on writing my book. Um, and I uh, started to ask myself, why am not why am I having such difficulty finding even an agent to help me sell this book? And so um, I started checking out the New York Times bestsellers list and seeing, well, what are people buying? What books are selling? And it really was clear that thanks to the George Floyd murder, um, you know, a lot of people were read, reading books about race right in this country. And I thought, well, I have a unique perspective on that because I'm from Detroit, a very racialized city. I grew up, you know, trying to straddle that line as an Asian American. Why don't I try to write a book about, why don't I shift the focus of my book to talk more about racial identity? Um, you know, and, you know, obviously with the rise in reporting of anti-Asian hate crimes, um, that also generated some interest in the book. And from there, it just sort of once I shifted the focus of the book from being just a family story to one about more personal about me and my uh, identity as a queer Asian American, um, you know, that's when the book really took off. And so it's been knock on wood, um, pretty good sailing since then. That's great. And um, I, I'm just curious, like you mentioned, like, oh, you just want to um, put down those stories so that your nieces and nephews could know more about the family, know where you guys came from and all that. And you say you put in for sure like the cute stories that they you want them to know and all that stuff. But um, from in other interviews and such of you yourself talking about the book and such, I heard that you also mentioned you also did put in a little bit of stories that aren't so nice as well. That revolves around your grandmother in terms of how she was and stuff. Can you just talk about how was it for you in terms of writing those down? Because it's true. You want to put it down, but at the same time, how do you do the balance of like, oh, what to put in and what to leave out in terms of the bad things per se, in your opinion, in terms of putting this book together? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, the one thing about writing your own memoir is that hopefully you can be honest with yourself, you know, and um, particularly if you're writing a memoir about your childhood, hopefully you've grown since that time period. Hopefully you've changed and hopefully you've learned some things in life, which will allow you to maybe have that distance where you're okay talking about, uh, you know, bad things you did as a kid. I mean, for instance, um, throughout my high school years, I was the, the, uh, Asian Republican. I was the young Asian Alex P. Keaton. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was not a very nice person. Um, you know, I was kind of a, a, a jerk in high school. So to be able to go back and laugh at yourself and the things that you did and the ideas that you had back then, I think is important part of writing a memoir. Now, when it comes to writing about your family and the other people around you, you have to hopefully approach it with a sense of compassion. Um, that's not to say that those other people that you're writing about are going to um, like the way that they're being presented. Um, and I've actually lost a friend, an old high school friend because of this, because she did not like how she was being presented in the book. Um, but I can't change it because that's my memory. That's how I remember it. But I also say that that was stuff that happened 30 years ago. We should hopefully be able to move on, you know, and, and um, be able to, to appreciate that. It, that's just part of our journey. Um, the other story that I will often share, you may have heard this story on, on another interview, was about, um, you know, writing about family. You cannot worry about how they're going to respond because they're going to have the reaction, right? Um, I was in Austin, Texas in the spring doing some pre-promotion for the book. 
and the host uh, invited me to come down um, early so that we could go grab lunch or something. And so I went down, you know, and standing on the street corner, I called the Uber uh, and I went down and standing on the street corner was this old Chinese lady who um, was just stretching because she was on a morning walk. She turns around and she sees my sweatshirt and the sweatshirt says Detroit versus everybody because it's a sweatshirt that I like. Um, and she asked me, oh, are you from Detroit? And I said, yeah. And we got to talking and it turned out that her mom was best friends with my grandmother. Now, if you've read my book, you know, or when you read my book, you'll see that my grandmother, um, her opening lines are Mo Young, you know, meaning useless. She just was not very nice to me. She hated me. She was one of my enemies growing up, you know, uh, in that Chinese restaurant. And, um, you know, but this woman is going on about saying how nice my grandmother was and, you know, yada, yada. And I, at some point I just said, you know, hey, I totally accept the fact that you liked my grandmother, that she was very nice to you you know, and that you have fond memories of her. I don't have fond memories of her. She wasn't nice to me. And the woman just would not give up. She just would say like, oh, your grandmother taught me how to drink American coffee. She was always giving us snacks and stuff like that. And we parted ways. And it occurred to me, uh, you know, a few days later that that was probably my grandmother sending that woman to me as a review saying, you misrepresented me. How dare you, you know, talk about me this way. So like, you know, uh, <laughs> no matter what you do, your family's going to have an opinion, even if it comes from the grave. So uh, that's just the way it is. You just got to write your truth. And what you believe is is the compassionate um, way of, of understanding yourself. In addition to like what your family was all think about in terms of the book after they read it and such, what do you want people to get out of after reading it or um, what are like the takeaways you want them to have? Well, first of all, I just want them to enjoy themselves, right? I mean, like with most writers, I just want someone to have a good read um, and feel like they got something out of it that, that it moved them from point A to point B. What those two points are, I'm not really sure. Uh, one thing I did say to my agents when starting, uh, when trying to pitch this book was, um, we live in a very divided country right now. We have these little silos where people don't talk to each other. But as I said earlier, Chinese restaurants are one of those few places where you can see people from diverse backgrounds. And so I want to ha- take that as an opportunity to have these serious conversations in our country. I don't want to shy away from them, but I think that maybe we can talk about them in a way that's a little bit less vitriolic, a little bit less combative, and maybe hopefully in a more compassionate way way. And again, I keep saying that compassionate because I feel like that's what it's about. Um, you know, and that, um, you know, we can, we can have these conversations. So it's like come for the Chinese food, but stay for the talk on racism. And so that's what I want people to walk away from. Um, I know it's a lofty goal and I don't, I don't know if I'm as optimistic as I am when I first started writing this book, but I would like my book to have some small, uh, impact on, um, helping our country, move in a direction of healing of coming back together maybe in a small way i don't know i, I think that's a great goal and i think no it's a start and no as long as you put it put your feet forward put your foot forward then it's a start and it's going somewhere you're providing us with something to work with because i think a lot of times media literature and all that stuff really helps in pushing the needle in terms of people learning educating themselves and just you know make for um, no better growth and talking a lot about like your you know your story your path and all that stuff 
and you now creating this writing this book a lot of it deals with race and such and your kind of you know experience with race and identity can you just talk about just your kind of experience dealing with race racism come in the 80s and 90s when you're growing up to now when you're seeing with all the anti-asian hate what do you see the kind of similarity differences or how do you kind of look at it at this point in time because i'm sure the racism is still the same but there's still got to be something that's different in terms of how it is right now compared to in the 80s and 90s Well, as you pointed out, the racism that we face has been the same, right? Whether you're looking at 80s Detroit or looking at present day now, or even when you're looking at, you know, the late 1800s when my family first arrived here, it's always been this perception that Asians are foreigners, that we don't quite belong here, that, you know, okay, maybe we can do the shitty low end jobs, but we're definitely not destined, you know, to be an integral part, right? We're advancing somebody else's agenda. We work for somebody else, right? We don't have our own agency. Um, And so I think that's something that, you know, whether it's a Vincent Chin case or even just trying to break into Hollywood, it's always the same. It's like, you know, do we get a seat at the table or not? Um, And in that sense, I I can say from my personal life, yes, I've always encountered it, but I've always tried to find a way to move beyond it. Um, I think the comparisons that are more visible is just... Uh, a larger scale of where's our community now. When we compare it to, say, the Vincent Chin case, where, again, there was no one in the media covering it. There were no politicians that were really advocating, you know, support for Vincent's family. There wasn't, you know, uh, there weren't celebrities that were you know, talking about the stories, et cetera, et cetera. But you flash forward to um, the rise in the reporting of anti-Asian hate during COVID, right? Um And you see a market difference in terms of how our community was able to respond. Not only were, not only did we have celebrities that were tweeting about it and keeping the the story front page, but we also had politicians that could advance legislation. We had a whole network of nonprofits that were, um, you know, figuring out how to report these things and advocate and to help raise money to, to support these victims, but also the advocacy necessary to prevent the next crime from happening. We had a whole cadre of Asian American uh, business people who um, worked together to form these new entities that are funding a lot of the work now. And so you look at each of these different areas, you see a much uh, stronger and visible Asian American community that can push back against these things. Um, sadly, I do think that that Asian Americans will always encounter a bit of racism in this country. There will always be a bunch of people that will feel that we're outsiders. Um, but the fact that we can push back against these people um, uh, makes me feel uh, more confident. You know, um, talking so much about your book and also the stuff that you do with TV and film, what's next for kind of the universe for your book? Can we expect that? Oh. It could be something that could turn into TV or movies because you have that kind of capacity to do so because you were in that industry. You you know what to, the ins and outs. So for yourself, do you see it more as a TV kind of thing, movie kind of thing? What's kind of your kind of um, thing? Obviously, you're right now just focused on getting the book out, spreading the word on the book, going on the tour and all that stuff. But eventually, we want to know, will there be like a TV movie thing? What is there? Um, well, I mean, a lot of people hope for those type of things. I mean, I think, you know, in the back of my mind, I do, I do, um, fantasize about that. But like you said, the first 
most important thing is making sure this book launch goes well, that it's embraced by the community, because I think when that happens, if and when that happens, then there'll be more interest. We were starting to get some inquiries from production companies and actors about our book, but then the Writers Guild strike um, went into effect. And because of that, uh, we're not able to go out and send the materials. But as soon as this strike is settled, hopefully, um, you know, those people will still be interested. And maybe more people will be interested because hopefully by then, well, I don't know when the strike will be settled, but, um, you know, the book comes out October 17th. Um, so soon after that, hopefully uh, there'll be a lot of buzz and then there will be interest. I also have a couple other projects that I would also love to see um, going in film and television. Um, I wrote an essay for uh, Bon Appetit last year, which just got selected for Best American Food Writing. And it's a single location uh, story that happens in the restaurant one night. So I think that's a really affordable. So if there are any movie producers out there, um, you can Google the story. Uh, but it's a single location. So it's a very uh, fairly inexpensive film to shoot. Um, think of it as Big Night set in a Chinese restaurant. Um, so contact me if you're interested. Um, you know, And I'm also working on a young adult book with one of the major entertainment companies. Um, so that could also go, uh, and then, you know, because there is interest in the book, I've also gotten these new opportunities. Like for instance, I was telling you earlier before we started recording is that the project I'm working on right now is for a a show called uh, America's test kitchen, which is a food show. Um, you know, and they've asked me to produce an episode of their podcast. So that's been a lot of fun. I've been working on that too. So I feel like, you know, if the, the book is generating a lot of buzz right now, like Publishers Weekly named it one of the top 10 memoirs for this fall. Goodreads just um, pointed it out as one of the 55 most anticipated books for this fall um, as well. So, um, and I'm starting to get more opportunities, even from the early buzz. And so if it does become a big book, then then those opportunities, I think, will come. So hopefully your listeners will be interested in the book and they'll support it. Hopefully they'll get their book club to read it. You know, hopefully they'll get their employee, their Asian employee group to invite me to come speak to their group. Maybe they can tell their local library to order it, you know. Um, but, but every little bit helps um, because it proves once again to these large corporations that there is an Asian American audience out there. But more importantly, that, that, that there is a pathway to tap into that audience. Because for them, even if they see the numbers, right, the demographic numbers, the shift, if they don't understand, if they don't think that they can access those numbers, those people, then they're not going to even try it, right? But if we can prove to them that there is an Asian American ecosystem out there of podcasts, of writers, of blogs, you know, of media people, of celebrities, then then they might be willing more willing to take a chance because they're like, oh, okay, that audience exists and we know how to tap into it. For sure. So you mentioned like what people can do, but in, in kind of like, can you just give it like a, maybe a bit of an explainer of how to, as consumer, if you can help, you know, those authors that we want to help support and make sure that their book is successful. Like what can they do really? What are the things that they need to know that will really let the book be a success other than buying it? Because I think, the consumer doesn't really know what necessary will help other than buying, right? Is there things that they could do more than that? or? Well, truthfully, there are two ways to get a, a project to be considered successful, right, in Hollywood, okay? The first is, as you were saying, peer sales mm-hmm. or peer audience numbers, right? They look at the metrics and say, how many people watch this, right? How many people paid to buy a ticket? The second one um, is buzz, right? 
you this is why TV shows will get renewed even if they don't have high viewership is because they generated enough free publicity and buzz for the company which then elevates other projects so you can do either one if you it'd be great if you pre-ordered my book right now right but if you can't pre-order it because you know it's a hardcover right now and it is $30 if you can uh, if that's not in your budget right now you can still help promote by by creating the buzz around it that means tweeting out about it that means you know posting on Instagram about it it means you know just talking to your friends about it and everybody has a network of friends that they can tap into like i said i mean employee resource groups right asian employee groups are great they're at corporations. They're oftentimes hitting new markets where you know the the uh, large companies aren't hitting. So if you're part of a Asian employee group, invite me to come speak during your lunchtime. You know, and I'll come in and I'll talk for an hour while you guys eat your lunch. You know what I mean? And hopefully from that, you guys will the people there listening will tell their friends and so forth. Um, you know, our book comes out October seventeenth. It's Christmas buying season, right? Or holiday buying season. Buy several copies of the book you know give it to your friends donate buy a copy and donate it to your local library you know there's a big concern right now because of book bans you know um at the same time there's a big push to get more asian american uh, books into the k through 12 system um and so contribute to that donate buy a copy and donate to the library or donate to your children's school these are little things that you can do to help you know and if doing this podcast generates an additional 10 or 15 people doing that and those 10 or 15 people then reach out to their friends and so on and so forth. That's where the impact comes in. It's not going to be a single, it's not me doing a single podcast that's going to, um, you know, um, determine whether or not my book is a bestseller now. It's going to be me doing multiple podcasts, right? Each of you guys building up. Because part of it too is that a lot of times people need to hear about a story several times before they go. Or they buy a ticket, right? Like you have to hear about a book four or five times before you say, okay, finally, I'll buy the book, right? You know, or I'll go to that movie. You're not going to go just off of one trailer, I don't think. I think you need to have multiples. So that's where they can help. Just generate buzz for it. You know, buy the book if you can. If you can't, just help spread the word about it. Keep it in people's consciousness. For sure. And we're only hoping that, you know, people listening to this podcast could go buy the book, support tweet about it no just spread it out give awareness to it because we need people supporting great stuff and if it's great there's no shame in you know, pushing it out to people that you want them to know and all that stuff but yeah we talk so much about you know your your life your story your book your memoir coming out october 17th people need to get it i want to just end our conversation with you know something casual something light you mentioned so much about you know Detroit because that's where you're from, that's where you grew up, that's where your family roots were. And can you just talk about to those that maybe aren't from the U.S. or they're just not that familiar with Detroit? Can you just describe to the audience what's so great about Detroit? I think that Detroit is an one of the iconic American cities. Right. Not just because of the auto industry and the arsenal of democracy, that long history. That's how America became America. Right. In a lot of ways was the industry, you know, the revolution of, of cars. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but also Motown music. I mean, that's why, you know, um, a lot of people around the world actually have an idea of Detroit impression, good or bad. And in some ways, writing this book will hopefully, um, you know, uh, 
I don't disavow some of the negative stuff because I don't want to shirk away from it because Detroit was a tough city to grow up into. I, I talk about how, like, you know, when I was growing up, not only was there the high unemployment, the auto industry falling apart, but there was crack cocaine, there was AIDS. I personally knew five people murdered by the time I was 18 years old. I mean, it was a violent city. But despite that, the city can still produce great things, right? And, 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 give people opportunities in life. And I feel like I am one of those people that is coming out of Detroit. And Detroit, through all its faults and all its difficulties, was a great place for me to grow up. And um, I want to share that story with people. So maybe you might have had an impression of Detroit and what it means, but maybe this will give you a new understanding of it. And so when you hear about the city burning down through Devil's Night, or when you hear about, like, you know, uh, you know, the Detroit riots, or you hear just about like, you know, the, the high number of murders, um, that you put it into context and you see that there are people behind these stories um, and hopefully people that you can relate to. For sure. You know, go beyond what you see on the media. Read the book and you'll see the great, the bad and all that stuff and to have a better perspective. So I want people to pick up the book thinking they're going to learn about a Chinese-American family or an Asian-American family. But in actuality, they're going to learn about Detroit. But more importantly, they're going to learn about America. They're going to learn about what it means to be American, you know, from our perspective. And I, I think that's the thing that I'm hoping to in some way surprise people, because a lot of the challenges that we're facing now as a country um, we see the seeds of it in the 80s, thanks to the Reagan revolution. And, you know, being a, a foot soldier in that, in some ways, I can I can be a little bit more sympathetic to people who are now on the opposite side of the political spectrum from me, right? Um, I understand that um, in a different way. So, yeah. Yeah, talking about Detroit, we can't end the podcast without also talking about, you know, you being the restaurant kid in a Chinese-American restaurant. What are your favorite Chinese-American food or just Chinese food in general? that people should check out if they don't eat Chinese food that often? Uh, well, I don't know who these people are but <laughs> <laughs> who don't eat yeah. Chinese But, uh, God, I, I would live above a Chinese restaurant if I could. Um, God, there's so many. It's so hard to say what my favorites are because it depends what mood I'm in. Generally, I love to eat noodles because they're good luck, right? But, you know, I love Chinese barbecues, you know. Um, but uh, the, the two things that I will mention from our family's restaurant is um, – egg rolls, which we're famous for. Um, I always like to start off my questions, and I'll end it uh, here this time by asking, um, in the 60 years that my family owned our Chinese restaurants, guess how many egg rolls we sold? Got to be in the millions. Yeah, you're pretty good about that. Most people will be like 100,000, 200,000. No, we sold over 10 million egg rolls. And these were all handmade by my grandma and mom. Even the skin, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't buy store-bought skin. They made the skin by like, you know, uh, coming with a batter and putting it on a frying pan, like every single one, you know. The second dish, which is the story I'm actually doing for America's Test Kitchen, is a unique Detroit dish called almond boneless chicken, which you can't really find on a lot of menus anywhere else. I, like, I think I've seen it maybe two or three times outside of the Detroit area, but it really is a Detroit thing. And so I'm interrogating the origins of that, of that dish because it's a very Southern-influenced um, dish. And so... Um, yeah, it's been fun doing that. So, uh, yeah, um, I can't wait to go back. I'm going home to Detroit this uh, upcoming week. 
and I can't wait to have some of that Detroit Chinese food. It's been such a joy talking to you, hearing your story, and learning so much from you because of your wealth of back knowledge and on everything. Like、um, nothing but the best for you. Hope for a great launch for your book. Everyone should go get it, pre-order it, spread the word out on the book, the memoir. So, Curtis, before we leave, can you just plug away all the stuff that they need to know, how they can support, and such. Great. So my book comes out October seventeenth.、Um, it's available for pre-orders right now. So you can actually go to Barnes and Noble, Amazon, your favorite independent bookstore, and order it right now. And you know, if you can order multiple copies, that's great. It makes for a wonderful gift. They'll arrive October seventeenth or soon after that. So perfect time for the hol-、uh, holidays. Order it for your uh, schools, uh, libraries, you know, your employee groups, whatever.、Um, you know, come out to my readings、um, on my website, CurtisFromDetroit.com. I'll have a list of the 30 cities that I'm going to be hitting、uh, between,、um, you know,、uh, October 17th and November 20th. But after that, I'm already starting to get invitations for next year.、Um, so I'll be touring、uh, all throughout the, the next year for the book. So come out to one of the readings. You know, get a signed autograph and say hi to me.、Um, but just in general, support Asian American literature, whether it's my book or somebody else's book. You know, because、um, the more success that we have, it just raises. The 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 tide for everybody, I think. And again, everyone, make sure to check it out. Again, it's the memoir. Everything I learned, I learned in the Chinese restaurant. Coming out October seventeenth, Curtis Chin. It's been a blast. Thank you for coming on the show, talking to, to me, and、uh, all the best again. And again, this is what kind of Asian are you? Podcast, a podcast featuring conversation about being Asian. I'm your host, Kyle. Until next time, have a good day. Bye. Thanks. Thank you for listening to What Kind of Asian Are You? We hope that our conversations about the diverse experiences and perspectives within the Asian community have been enlightening and thought-provoking. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at What Kind of Asian Pod for updates and behind-the-scenes content. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and review on Spotify and Apple. It really helps us reach more listeners who could benefit from these important conversations. If you're feeling generous and want to support the show, you can buy us a coffee through the link in our bio. Every little bit helps us continue to bring you new episodes each and every week. Most importantly, we hope you'll tune in next week for another insightful conversations about being Asian. Until then, take care.